Hey, it's Jed Hearn, host of Wizards, Warriors, and Words. If you're enjoying the writing advice on this show, you might like my new podcast, The Jed Hearn Show, where every week I share the best fantasy writing advice that I've learned from publishing three fantasy novels and a best-selling video game. There's over 12 episodes that you can listen to right away, including my top 10 fantasy books of all time, how to make fantasy names that don't suck, two rules that make writing effortless, and my complete summaries of Brandon Sanderson's and Neil Gaiman's writing classes, and much more. Check it out by searching for The Jed Hearn Show in your podcast app. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Wizards, Warriors and Words podcast. My name is Jed Hearn, author of Across the Broken Stars, and I'm joined today by Gabriel Bergmoser. Gabe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back again. That's it. This is the second time that I've interviewed Gabe on this show, on my old podcast, The Novel Analyst Show. We had, geez, I don't know, like four interviews or something like that. So you're definitely quite a few. up there for, yeah, you're definitely up there for most repeat guests. Um, Gabe is the author of The Inheritance, uh, which I read recently, and it is amazing. Uh, amongst several other books, which you can, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see in the background over here. Um, Gabe, do you want to talk to us a little bit before we get into the episode of what The Inheritance is about, just so we have some context? So basically, The Inheritance kicks off in northern Queensland, where a young woman named Maggie is effectively hiding out. So initially in the book, you know, you, you get a sense fairly early on that she's running from something in her past. But as the book goes on, you kind of learn that there's more than one something. There's a few things going on that she's sort of trying to, you know, keep away from. Very early on, she gets involved in a situation that she probably shouldn't get involved in, realizes the local gangster is extorting her boss, and she sort of says to herself, no, stay out of it, stay out of it, stay out of it. She does not stay out of it. She gets very much into it and reacts in kind, which draws police attention, which draws the attention of her dark past, which forces her into a confrontation with said dark past. So it's a standalone novel. It's a noir chase thriller, kind of in the vein of john wick or nobody but imagine one of those things set in melbourne but it's also technically a sequel to my book the hunted which came out last year but yeah. i very deliberately tried to make it so that both books are standalone novels i think that they enrich each other if you read them both Absolutely. but they can also be read in isolation so the inheritance does follow on from the hunted but the hunted was very much you know more existing in the outback horror tradition and horror is not everybody's thing uh, so if that's not really a thing, totally fine. The Inheritance is in a lot of ways a milder read and you can read it without having read The Hunt and that's fine. But I do think if you if you read both, they definitely speak to each other in, in quite a few key ways, I think. The other one that really helps with that set too is The Consequence, which is your Audible original, which uh, I believe is free for Audible members. Is that correct? Yeah, so so the consequence, uh, it's Audible have recently launched this, I think it's called their Audible Plus catalogue. So basically, it's a collection of all of their Audible exclusives or originals, basically audiobooks you can only get via Audible that in, in more often than not, they've commissioned themselves. 
And they've recently made it so that all of those are free with an Audible subscription or trial. So if you were so inclined, you could sign up for the trial, cancel it, and still get to listen to, you know, a couple of them within the free month. But, you know, I think Audible will slap me across the face if I don't say, don't do that, <laughs> you know, obviously. Um, Allegedly. <laughs> obviously, get Audible and keep it, listen to it. But there's heaps of good stuff on there. You know, there's The um the Orchard, which is this new audio drama with Eric Banner and Magda Zabanski that's doing mm. really well at the moment. Uh, there's Audible Originals from J.P. Palmer, from Jack Heath, from Dervil McTin, and from heaps of really awesome Australian authors. So there's kind of an embarrassment of riches of, crime and other writing on there that you can really currently only get through audible so please like put the consequence at the top of the list yes. but make a list because there's a lot of other stuff you could include on that list which is really cool as well awesome and then you don't even get into that's not even with getting into the 30 hour long epic fantasy stuff that's on there as well because i uh there's some yeah, good things huge, on there huge huge amounts good of good cool stuff on there, on there. <laughs> um yeah if you're going on a long road trip and you don't want to be terrified by visions of hooks such as in the hunter yeah. then uh there's some other alternatives to listen to um, I'd like to kind of start with talking about the drafting process of The Inheritance because I was lucky enough to read early drafts of this and the final book is dramatically different to what you sent through to me. It would have been, what, maybe a year and a half or, or two years ago when you were kind of initially revising that book. Can you just talk me through a little bit about how the book shifted from that initial stage through to what ended up getting published? I mean, look, I don't think I've ever had a circumstance where the finished book was as dramatically different to the first draft as the inheritance version A is to version whatever this final version <laughs> is. Like the closest example I can think of, funnily enough, is the last time I did a sequel to one of my published books, which was The Second Boone Shepherd. And that was also quite drastically overhauled in the drafting process, but honestly less so. Like the, the overall structure and plot of a Boone Shepherd's American Adventure remained the same it was just that some of the I guess some of the meat of it had to be really heavily overhauled in order for it to finally work in the case of the inheritance I think that the story itself just didn't hang together and the reason for that was that I knew from when I finished the very earliest version of the hunted that I wanted to continue Maggie's story and I wanted to see what happened to her next and explore further and you know I'd written a couple of like short stories and like mini novellas I guess about her in the interim but it was when the hunted was acquired actually not even by Harper Collins at that point but by my agent and she said she was interested in more stories about Maggie that I went through the different ideas I guess I'd accrued over the last couple of years for potential full-length follow-ups featuring the character and the one that dealt with her past and I guess brought her back to Melbourne to face up to what she was running from was the one that really jumped out as you know the most vital next chapter to tell and so I started writing it without much of a plan and that I don't think is often a very smart thing to do there are writers who are pantsers you know who can just make it up as they go along and somehow spin solid gold from that I'm not one of them and by this point in my career I should know that but somehow that self-knowledge went walkabout during this process and I really just kind of dove in and wrote that first scene you know I think I pretty much just like wrote that first line which is Maggie sensed danger the moment the man walked through the door. And I just went from there. And at first it, it actually kind of worked like the making it up as I went along. And I let myself kind of explore where she was, what she was running from, you know, what her past was, how it tied in with her father's background as a corrupt cop and everything. But the problem was that the inheritance as a concept hinged very heavily on 
I guess, a villain in the shadows, like somebody who had been party to a pretty heinous crime somewhere in the past of Maggie's father. And the idea was that that crime was essential to what had turned Maggie's father into the monster who in turn turned Maggie into what she is in the two books. The thing is that I didn't know who that villain was. So I hit the halfway point of the inheritance, the midpoint of the book, which was roughly the point where, you know, the nature of what's at stake and what's going on has to become clear. And I genuinely didn't know. I didn't know what she was up against. I didn't know who the bad guy was. I didn't know, you know, ultimately who she'd be facing off with in the final act of the book. And, you know, I cast around for ages trying to figure out what the back half of this book would be. And eventually I kind of happened on something that I thought was sort of interesting. And, you know, I played that through and I don't think I ever really 100% believed in it, but it, I, I couldn't think of anything else. And I was like, well, I guess this will do. And upon submitting it to my publisher and waiting for several months of stony silence, I soon was told it would not do. It did not do. And, you know, basically I got a really very kind but very extensive breakdown of notes from Catherine Mill and my publisher at HarperCollins effectively being like, look, I think the first part of this book is really strong. I think the core concept is really strong. I don't think it hangs together. I don't think the antagonists work. I don't think it's pacey enough. Maggie doesn't have enough agency. There's not enough kind of surprises in here and it loses some of the visceral grounded punchy quality of the hunted. And I remember kind of getting those notes and reading them. And I think somewhere in there, Catherine had written brace yourself and <laughs> I braced myself and then realized that I didn't really need to brace myself because she was right. You know, I actually completely agreed sure. with her sure. and the fact that there was no defensiveness or there was no part of me that was, you know, defensive of or, or protective of the work that I'd already done was really the, all the indicator I needed that the work wasn't good enough and it wasn't where it needed to be. So what followed, I guess, was uh, the inheritance second half struggle mark two, which was pretty much the same thing again of like trying to figure out who's the antagonist, what's going on, what's conspiracy at play. And that involved a lot of like, you know, very harried phone calls to Catherine and being like, what if it's this? And 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 what happened this time around was that I didn't have some major breakthrough where the whole back half of the book revealed itself to me but I started to have these incremental breakthroughs. Like I figured out the next little run of things that had to happen after that midpoint. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, I can write that much. And at that point I was sort of thinking, all right, well, maybe the antagonist is this, maybe the final showdown will be this, maybe it'll be this. And then I sort of hit a brick wall where I would kind of have to make a decision about what was going to happen next. And what I'd had in mind wasn't really cutting it. So that led to like more Harry calls to Catherine and more long walks and more pulling my hair out and more of that. And then a little bit more was revealed, a little bit more was revealed, a little bit more was revealed until finally I ended up with something that was, you know, that, that largely worked. But then when I read over it, it, it did feel like several different drafts are written several years apart kind of mashed together and so after that there really was like a huge amount of like going over the whole thing reshuffling rewriting reworking polishing and i think what really helped in all of this because it was a very erratic writing process was the fact that i knew from a very early point what i wanted the book to be about and you know it's in the title it's about inheritance it's about what we take from our parents it's about you know inherited trauma but you know what basically inherited traits in general like and it's about reaching that point in your life where you realize that what your parents give you you don't have to keep or what the people who have hugely influenced you as a kid give you you don't have to keep and 
it's a theme that I explored in some ways in the Boone Shepherd books as well. But the the idea of reaching the point in adulthood where you realize that the people you admire are human. And if you've put them on a pedestal, it's almost never earned because there's a certain point where the halo breaks and you see these people who you've looked up to and in some ways modeled yourself after who they really are. And it's not to say that they're bad people. It's not to say that they're deficient in some way, but that that can be disappointing and that can be confronting for a young person. And it was all of those very, I guess, real coming of age themes that sort of underpins what I knew had to be this brutal, bone-crunching, fast-paced, noiry, pulpy chase thriller. And as long as I guess I held on to that North Star, I knew that the book would at least work thematically. And eventually I sort of arrived at something that I ended up liking a lot more than I liked The Hunted, you know? And it's been really funny watching the reactions come through because there are quite a few people who've like either, you know, reviewed it or just tweeted about it or post about it on social media saying, you know, this is so much better than the hunted. But then there's a lot of other people sort of saying, well, no, I like the hunted more. And it's interesting because, you know, my brother called me the other day and pretty much said that, but I sort of said to him, I was like, well, the reality is that I think it actually kind of comes down to what your preference is. You know, if you like the outback setting and the horror genre and the kind of really high octane, really extreme, really creepy, sunblasted savagery of something like The Hunted, then yeah, of course, that's going to be more your thing. But if you like, you know, the rain-soaked urban vistas and the chases through dark streets and the close quarters combat and that kind of thing, then yeah, The Inheritance is probably going to be more your thing. And there, there was one review I think I read that said, some of the effect of being like, look, I like The Hunted more. I'm not really sure why that was, but I think ultimately it comes down to the fact that I just find human hunting cannibals a lot more compelling than I find murderous bikey gangs. And that's totally fair enough. I mean, they are very, very different books, but I think for me, I'm very proud of both of them in different reasons because I think they both ultimately achieve what I was hoping to achieve. It's just that what I was hoping to achieve is not the same thing in both books. Yeah, I think... Because I, I personally, like as a as a concept at a higher level, I think I prefer the idea of human chasing cannibalistic, you know, townspeople out in the middle of backwater of Australia or whatever. I think I prefer that as a concept over bikey gangs. But the inheritance is like a massive preference for me over the hunted. And like I said in my review, I think it's my favorite book of yours that you've written so far. And I think it comes down to what you were saying about the thematic cohesiveness of it. I don't actually think it's necessarily that division in in the settings that has led to preference either way or the other but I think it's just the fact that like you are very clear about what the book is focusing on this idea of legacy this idea of grappling with the past which is something that you have discussed in a lot of ways in your previous books as well um but I think this book is just very cohesively done in how it explores that because it's not just Maggie who's dealing with the past it's pretty much every single other character in the book as well and that idea that you were saying about how it felt like a bunch of different drafts all like kind of welded together in a really messy way. Like I definitely don't see that in the final product because I think as you were saying before, you just realized, oh, the North Star is people dealing with the things that they have been given in the past and then trying to move on from that and form their own identity. So I think there's a big writing lesson there about, first of all, your first draft doesn't have to be published. (laughs) It doesn't even have to be resembling of the final book. And then the second thing as well is like the importance of trying to figure out what you're actually trying to explore what you're actually trying to say that goes that I think elevates a book beyond just, oh, there's cool action or 
you know, there's like witty dialogue in here or whatever. Like, I think that's the thing that really separates a book and for me puts it into that five-star category is when it actually explores something that's interesting and it has different nuances on how it approaches it and different characters kind of have their own reaction to it as well, which I really appreciated. Uh, thanks. And I, I really appreciate hearing that because, you know, it's, it kind of is that funny thing where because the hunted was so successful and I don't think I really realized how successful it had been until the inheritance was about to come out. And I started, you know, seeing the anticipation for the inheritance and, you know, people being like, oh, I can't wait to read it and everything. And that was around the point where I started to really feel this fear of being like, oh, I think I'm going to let a lot of people down with this book. I think a lot of people are going to be expecting, you know, the hunted 2.0 and it's, it's not that. And Ultimately, I think it was when I heard the first review that was like, this is better than The Hunted. I was like, all right, you know what? If one person thinks it's better, <laughs> then if it, like if one person recognizes what I'm trying to say and what I'm trying to do with this book, then that's kind of enough for me. And it seems like more than one person has recognized that. And I think the reason for that is that, you know, ultimately we're, we are all in some way or another in conversation with our pasts, but also in conversation with our upbringings, because, you mm -hmm. know, it's our upbringings that in a lot of ways shape the people we grow to become, whether we like it or not, in ways both positive and negative. And you do reach a point in adulthood where you have to contend with that and you have to kind of look at it and say, okay, well, the way that I've been living my life or the, the assumptions that I've made about life or about the way the world works, are they actually mine or are they things that have been given to me by others when I was younger and more malleable? And you know, I'm, I'm somebody who, I guess because surprising nobody who has either met me or is listening to this, I was not somebody who fit in very well as a kid. And, you know, I think a consequence of that was that I spent a lot of time when I was younger, really looking for people to model myself after, you know, like if I would meet somebody who was really overwhelmingly charismatic and really kind of, you know, had that way with people and that ease whether they were really funny or really charming or whatever i would kind of go out of my way to try and ultimately fail because i was i was too weird i think in too many ways <laughs> but ultimately fail to kind of you know emulate that or be like that because sure. I was like, look that's a person who's functioning that's a mm. person who you know is is being themselves and doing it in a way that doesn't put people off or doesn't make them the outcast but kind of makes them exalted and you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go through so many of these people who I would sort of look up to and then inevitably something would happen where I realized that, oh no, hang on, you're, you're kind of just as confused and weird and alienated in your own way as I am. Yes. And, you know, it's that thing where oftentimes if you have a friendship or a relationship when you're younger with somebody who you are quite envious of, I have this theory that nine times out of 10, there is something that that person is jealous of in you. You know, it underpins so many toxic friendships and everything. And ultimately the only way out of that is kind of, kind of empathy in a lot of ways and is realizing that that person is a person too. And that doesn't absolve them of, you know, their flaws, or their foibles. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, really mean that they're a bad person or a good person or anything. It just means that they're a person. And that's kind of the journey that Maggie's going on in this book with Harrison Cooper. And there are two scenes in the book that when I reread it not long before publication made me get a little bit choked up. And one of them involves Maggie's relationship with Harrison Cooper. And it's sort of mm. the moment where she realizes, cause she goes on a real journey with him where 
for, for those who are listening and haven't read the book, Harrison Cooper was her father's best friend. And when Maggie was a kid, she basically idolized him and desperately wished that he would take her away from her miserable life with her father and, yes. you know, take her to safety and take her to somewhere where she was like loved and accepted and all of that. And he never did. And then he comes back into her life as an adult, basically needing a favor. And early on in the book, Maggie's suspicious of him, but then she kind of gets to a place where she lets herself believe that maybe this is him finally coming good. And maybe this is him finally in some way or another doing what he always failed to do when she was a kid. And then the answer is the more complicated than that. And she sort of ends up in a place where she hates him again. She's like almost out to get him, but the way their relationship resolves is her reaching this place of being like, you know what? Yeah, he did some crap things and yeah, he wasn't a great guy in a lot of respects, but in a lot of ways he was a decent person and he was human and he wasn't a bad guy. He was just a flawed guy. And the resolute without spoiling the specifics the resolution of that relationship is maggie kind of looking at this person who was this you know this aspirational father figure to her in some ways and finally just accepting you know what he was just a guy he was just a person and he had good traits and he had bad traits and ultimately none of those things were things that i should necessarily emulate i've kind of got to go my own way i've kind of got to be my own person and i've got to stop shaping my identity around the people who I looked up to when I was younger. And I think that's something we all go through, whether, you know, we're just kind of, you know, normal people living normal lives or whether we're, you know, machete wielding <laughs> murderous vigilantes like Maggie. Yeah. I, I love the fact that that to me is the power of fiction is to be able to explore things like that, that are so deeply resonant and so internal and kind of like tender in a sense, while also having like, cars blowing up and people getting shot with sniper rifles and heads getting chopped off and all that good stuff. Like, I just think it's great that you can have both the, of those things in the same book. And I think in particular, I would love to hear a bit more about there's one scene sort of in the middle of the book where Jack Carlin is sort of recounting a fateful decision that he made with two of his other friends in the police force back when they were both younger. And that scene by itself could, me, could for me just stand as like a short story and be an amazing piece by, you know, in its own isolation. Like, how did you kind of come to get such a sense of emotional depth and connection in such a short period of, of space? So I'm so glad you bring up that scene because that that is my favorite part of the book. And yes. I think in a lot of ways that's the scene that saved the book because when I got to the end of the main rewriting process and when I sort of looked at it and it felt like it was a lot of different drafts kind of jam, jammed and welded together and not in a way that was particularly, particularly fluid or cohesive, one of the big problems was that the, the narrative of the inheritance relies a lot on events that happened before Maggie was born, you know, events that happened in the past that she's only now coming to fully understand the scope of. And in the original version of it, or, you know, the, the last version of it, I guess, before the version that ultimately went into proper copy editing and everything, a lot of that past was relayed through, through monologues, basically, and through exposition and through the different characters, whether it was Harrison Cooper or Jack Carlin, who was another ex-cop friend of her father's and the protagonist of The Consequence, but we'll get to that, uh, basically you know, sitting her down and telling her one part of the story or another part of the story or another part of the story. And it got to the point where I was reading through it and I was like, oh my God, I can't have another scene of Maggie sitting down and having somebody <laughs> just explain the past to her. And, yes. you know, I realized because this theme of, you know, the, the, 
the sins of the father, but the mistake made in the past that resonates into the future, I've always found so powerful and so compelling. But, you know, in handled in that way where it was all delivered through exposition, it didn't have the sense of weight or of pathos that I needed it to have. And I sort of sat there for a while pulling my hair out over it. And then I thought back to reading Jack Heath's books, uh, Hangman, Hunter and Hideout. Jack Heath, if you haven't read his work, he's awesome. He writes, uh, I mean, he writes for children, but he also writes books for adults about a cannibal detective working for the FBI. And it's awesome. But (laughs) in Jack's books, his books are written in the first person. But what he does really well is that if there's a scene where his protagonist, Timothy Blake, is interrogating somebody and that person's about to give him like a big dump of exposition, he'll often shift in the next chapter and break from the first person narrative. And basically for a chapter, tell the story from the perspective of the other character. So it's like that character's telling the story to Timothy Blake, but we're seeing it through their eyes. And I thought, you know what? I can do that because the inheritance is almost entirely limited third person from Maggie's perspective. But I thought, well, here's an opportunity for me to like, break with that jump back in time and just do like one long chapter that is almost a novella in its own right that details the whole story and in doing so i was like i'm doing a few things there you know i'm giving you the crucial information that you need but i'm also able to chart the development of these three policemen harrison cooper maggie's father eric and jack carlin who made this fateful decision as young rookie cops that ended up poisoning all of their lives in different ways and in that chapter i can actually chart how all three of them went from being one thing to another thing because of this choice you know like jack carlin in the present day is quite irreverent and snarky and wry and acerbic but when he's younger, he's quite serious and quiet and withdrawn. Mm. Harrison Cooper in the present day is like, you know, weighed down and world weary and tired and sort of quite, you know, seemingly gentle and friendly. But as a younger cop, he's this kind of, you know, snarky joker who's sort of always kind of not taking anything seriously and, you know, kind of loves putting on a show for people. And I straight away thought it'd be really interesting to take these characters who you've met as older men and show you that their younger versions were completely different. And in demonstrating the difference charts, the significance that this choice ultimately had on their souls, you know, because it it kind of is a Faustian story, you know, Mm. these guys effectively sold their soul to the devil. And that chapter is really detailing the damage of that and the cost of that, not just to themselves, but to the people around them. So not only did it do a couple of things there, but it also, I found at least in writing it, gave those circumstances a real sense sense of weight and pathos that they hadn't had previously. Not when it was just exposition being delivered secondhand to Maggie, like seeing it firsthand as an author and hopefully as an audience was always going to be a lot more powerful. So straight away, once I wrote that chapter and put it in there, I just felt like it enriched everything that came before it and everything that came after it because to me, the key really was that contrast between you've met these guys in the present, this is who they were, this is the journey that took them there. And I think in doing so, if I've done my job right, I think it actually underpins the stakes of what all of the characters are dealing with and the pull that the past always has on us when there is something unresolved lingering in our histories that we have to ultimately contend with, even if we can't find the neat, narratively satisfying resolution for it, you know? So, yeah, so I'm really glad you brought that chapter up because I really enjoyed writing it. And in some ways, I think that was the chapter that saved the book, you know, that really brought it together and really gave it 
the sense of weight that I needed it to have for it to ultimately be about what I wanted it to be about. I 100% agree. And I think the other thing that it does really effectively is it adds a huge amount of depth to the book as well, because up until that point, as you've said, we're just in Maggie's head the whole time. And then for you to just be able to like do a chapter and just like bang, instantly characterize these three people and elevate the amount of depth and complexity that you've shown for them so far by, you know, going back however many years it is into the flashback. Like it's a masterstroke in terms of adding this sense of depth to the story because otherwise like without that, as you, as you say, it probably doesn't work as well. You've got a story which takes place over a couple of days. There's characters there who are just sort of secondary to Maggie and you never really get in their head. But with this, it just sort of creates like all of this distance, all of this like burden of the past that's existing in the story. And yeah, it adds a sort of operatic kind of epicness to it as well. Which I'm really glad to hear because that's exactly what I was going for. But I also think it, you know, it underscores the fact that this is a story about the sins of the father becoming the daughters to either avenge or absolve. Mm. And that idea doesn't have a lot of weight unless we see to some degree what those sins were and what the impetus that led to them was. And that's why I think that chapter is so important. But beyond that, you know, because as opposed to the hunted, which jumped around between quite a few different perspectives and ultimately Maggie kind of emerged as the central character in that story in this time, you know, you are, you are just in Maggie's head. And so I think it was important to have something like that, to enrich the supporting characters and to enrich the inner lives of everybody around her, because ultimately it just makes the world feel more real and more lived in and makes the characters feel more alive, which is, you know, what we strive for as storytellers. Absolutely. What do you think would be like some of the writing lessons that you've taken from the process of creating the inheritance? Oh man, that is, that is such a good question. Um, Trust your editor is is probably the biggest (laughs) one. Um, So there's that, Uh, you know, I mean, I'll tell you what, you, you, you can't really have much more of a ego adjustment than coming off the back of a widely well-received bestseller like The Hunted and then having your publisher tell you that your next manuscript just is not working. I mean, and you know, I mean, it was, it was fine and Catherine did an amazing job with it, but it really did just underscore to me that I don't know anything, you know, (laughs) like I've, I've, you know, I've written a bunch at this point and obviously I've studied storytelling and I've taught storytelling and I feel like I have a pretty good handle on the fundamentals of it, but that doesn't, not even like having the status of a best-selling author, which I crazily now do have, not even that, you know, saves me from really screwing up sometimes. And so, you know, I think, I think one of the big things was that, you know, you just kind of have to learn not to hold on to things too tightly. You know, you just have to do your best and ultimately just be willing to hear it if somebody's going to tell you it's not working. And that doesn't mean you have to agree. In this case, I did agree, but I think, you know, your your responsibility as a writer is always to listen. But, you know, beyond that, I think had I been had I been younger or maybe more ego-driven about the whole thing, I probably wouldn't have taken that as well as I did. And um or at least not been as willing to be open to what Catherine had to say about it. So I think given that the book's gone from something that really did not work to something that I'm really proud of and is one of my favorite things that I've written. I think the importance of listening to the people who have a bit of an outside perspective, but are still invested in you and your story. It just can't be understated, you know, at all. Yeah. 
Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, that's, that's an interesting takeaway. And me. on top of that, actually, the um, just to harken back to the chapter we were just talking about, I think you know a lesson that I took away from it was that you can. And it's not that I haven't written things where I've shifted perspectives before, but I've either done it where, you know, chapter by chapter, it's different perspectives or the books kind of, you know, split up into several parts where each part is focusing on different character. But in the case of the inheritance, it was the first time where I broke with perspective for just one chapter and ended up working really well. And that's something that I've returned to for my next novel as well, because I found a point where that really naturally fit too. So having seen how well that worked for me in this instance has made me much more open to, you know, revisiting it for further instances. Sweet. Okay. That's exciting. I'd love to chat more about your next novel, maybe a bit later in the episode, if you can reveal information yeah, about sure. it. Um, sure. For now, I would like to ask you, because last time we were on the show, I posed to you a question to say a Springsteen song to sum up each of your books. What Springsteen song would you use to sum up The Inheritance? Did I use Adam Razor Kane for The Inheritance last time? I think I know used I used that, that for, for one something. of the Boone books. Oh, did I? Oh, yeah. yeah, I did too. I did it for, yes, yes, you're right. Um, you know, weirdly, I didn't listen to a lot of Bruce Springsteen writing The Inheritance. I listened to a lot of Tom Waits. Um, mm. So the flashback chapter, I was listening to Cold, Cold Ground by Tom Waits on repeat. And um, there's one death scene shortly after the flashback chapter where I wrote it at my local pub while listening to Downtown Train by Tom Waits. And I spent the next hour walking around the streets of Camberwell, just listening to that song on repeat, just feeling my feelings because it was just like, oh man, uh, you know, there was, there was a lot to deal with there. That was, um, you know, that was one of the, one of the, one of the teary moments for me. But if I had to tie it to a Springsteen song, not long before I dove into rewriting this book in earnest, Letter to You came out, you know, Springsteen's newest album. Yes. And I found that, song for orphans really spoke to the inheritance a lot um because that is a song about at least insofar as i can you know pass the lyrics of (laughs) something bruce springsteen wrote in the 70s when his lyrics were pretty wild as he would admit himself it does seem to be a song about you know the next generation coming up you know about stepping up and breaking free from the shackles of the past and realizing that now you are the adult now you are the person who's moving forward now you are um you are the next generation the world's in your name now and that is one of the key themes of the inheritance so off the top of my head i would say i'm, I'm sure that there's like another springsteen song that's more appropriate for it like maybe like my father's house from nebraska or something mm. but um but for now i think you know that one really day, stands maybe. out because sorry yeah absolutely independence day jumps out too or i mean i know that i use adam razor kane for one of the boons but that does seem to really speak to the inheritance particularly with the rage that you know underscores so much of what is going on with maggie yeah song for orphans is probably like one of my favorites from letter to you and it is remarkable when you think about like as a writer the idea of publishing off a first draft from 50 years ago and then publishing it now like can you imagine how weird that would be if like in your seventies or eighties or whatever, you're like, Oh, here's this thing I wrote like 50 years ago. I'm going to chuck that out in the world again. Well, I mean, what's so wild about what Bruce did with those three songs with um, song for orphans. If I were the priest and Jane and he's a shooter is that he didn't change the lyrics at all. He just, yeah. you know, he just performed them, but with his, you know, really gravelly kind of Bruce Springsteen in his seventies voice that he's mm. got now. And it makes for this like, particularly if you're very familiar with Bruce's early work and with the kind of 
wild rambly Dylan-esque lyrics that he used to use for everything, it, it creates this weird dissonance that somehow completely works on that album. Like for this album that's sure. about growing old and mortality and saying goodbye to things, these very inherently youthful songs delivered by this elder rock statesman just have this insane power that somehow enriches the whole album, but it, it shouldn't work, but it absolutely does. So I don't know that that's a, that's a very weird instance, but it just, he yeah. absolutely nailed it. I got to yeah. say. That's a cool take. I hadn't, hadn't heard anyone. Yeah. Think about it in those terms before, but that makes a lot of sense. That does make a lot of sense. Well, I look forward to hearing the, uh, yeah. The books that you're publishing when you're 80 that were written back when you were 12 or whatever that'll be very exciting <laughs> yeah, we'll see how we go <laughs> um before we started recording for this episode we were discussing a little bit about the whole notion of the australian thriller because it really seems like this is something that has taken off quite a bit in the last couple of years um from my limited vantage at least this idea of thrillers that kind of get a lot of their um i suppose unique reading proposition if you want to use such a crass term from the fact that they're sort of set in either outback australia or in very distinctive australian towns and they kind of engage with things that you can sort of i suppose recognize as australian whatever that means um so yeah i'd just be curious to talk a little bit uh with you about that because you mentioned that you had some theories as to why that has sort of risen up in uh recent years and become a bit more of a popular genre so look, I mean, I could be completely wrong on this. And, you know, there've been many, many, many articles written about the rise of Aussie noir or Outback noir or whatever you want to call it. My, my theory is very simply that it's a gripping commercial entertaining genre that is entirely ours. Mm. And to, I think, I think my belief that that's the case goes back to when I was a kid and I would read a lot and, you know, watch a lot and everything, but all of the big, glossy, high profile, exciting, I guess, high concept stories were always American or British, you know? Yes. And I always kind of wondered why the cool action heroes or the superheroes or whoever couldn't be Australian characters yeah. or why we couldn't have those stories set here. And I think that's one of the reasons that as a kid, I gravitated so much towards things like Tomorrow When the War Began, because you know, that was a story that was set in a small country town that was very reminiscent of where I grew up. Yes. And it was teenagers very reminiscent of, I wasn't quite a teenager at the time, but, you know, kids very reminiscent of people who I knew who were the heroes and who were the main characters. And there was a weird kind of ownership to reading stuff like that, like a, like a pride that came in seeing something that absolutely deserved its place with the best of anything coming from overseas, but that was ours. And I think it kind of took a long time for literature here to catch up to it because even though you know i mean we had um you know we like we had matthew riley when i was a kid who was was huge and i was mm. reading him when i was probably too young to be reading him but even matthew riley's stories which were these you know big high concept action-packed sort of sci-fi military thrillers were always set in america with american protagonists and it mm. wasn't until he did hover car racer which i loved or um seven ancient wonders which that series has only just finished i think but that he, he actually employed an australian protagonist mm. um an australian yeah, setting west. in hover car racer but J yeah jack west in seven ancient wonders which was so cool when i was a I kid know, because was <laughs> you know not only was i like a history buff and i loved anything to do with the seven ancient wonders of the world you know the um the catherine roberts seven wonders series was one of my favorite things growing up and to see this massive blockbuster action-packed sci-fi novel 
dealing with the seven wonders of the world that was like, you know, Indiana Jones on crack but with an <laughs> Aussie protagonist yeah. Yeah. was yeah, so it was cool, you know? Awesome. And I kind of always wished that we saw more of that in our literature and in our films. And, you know, the Australian film scene, you know, we've, we've made some absolute classics over the years, but we seem to have kind of struggled when it comes to genre or high concept, you know, you've got mm. Mad Max, but you don't have a lot else. Like our, the, the thing that we were kind of most well known for, at least on the international stage is either dreary like dramas or quirky comedies, mm. you know, um, like, you know, your Priscilla's or your Crocodile Dundee's or whatever, or Mura's Wedding and stuff. And I think that Outback Noir has so erupted because it is taking the, you know, the thriller, the, um, the, the, potboiler airport thriller you know one of the most probably the most popular genre of novel there is and it's doing it in a way that is completely ours i mean you know you, you you've mm. got to kind of and it's not to say that there weren't outback noir novels before the dry because obviously there were but the dry was really the thing that came along and yes. and blew up the industry because it was the first time that there was this you know this absolute blockbuster hit that was this complete page turning murder mystery who done it that completely embraced the setting of a drought stricken australian town mm. and made that setting a crucial part of the story i mean you could not tell the dry in america you could not no. translate that story overseas and have it uh you know, you, you couldn't translate that story overseas and have it still be the same story. There are other blockbuster Australian novels that did really well that like Big Little Lies, for example, you know, it was an Australian book set in Australia, but was made as an American production set in America. Similarly with her with her new one with um Nine Perfect Strangers. The dry, you couldn't do that with. You could not take the setting away from the dry and still maintain what makes that book special. And the same thing could be said of Scrublands. The same thing could be said of Greenlight. The same thing could be said of the bluffs of so many of these, these books that have kind of, you know, come out and done really well in the wake of the dry. So I think that there is just like a sense of cultural pride in that genre because, you know, you read, again, you read something like Scrublands or the Bluffs and they're so tied to those so distinct settings that you just can't take them away from it. And the fact that they happen to be awesome, compelling, page-turning blockbuster thrillers at the same time, it's just rad. Yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of like, from a commercial perspective, being able to take everything that's great about a thriller and then add in this very unique setting, which then itself influences the action set pieces influences the kind of character psychologies and influences the plots as well in the case of something like the dry like that does add a very unique kind of element to a genre that is like very familiar and is very like structured in a lot of instances like you know murder mystery you usually find out who the murderer is by the end of it um with thrillers the main character is usually getting away or defeating the bad guys or whatever it is not always though, um, but it just adds this layer of kind of the surprising to the expected at the same time, which I think is really cool. Like being able to hit people and, with like, here's what you enjoy and here's this new thing as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, like I think um, I think on top of that, like when it when it comes to the settings, uh, I completely lost my train of thought. Can you edit this out? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we can leave. We can leave it in. It's fine. It's fine. It just, it's just shows you up. Okay. Yeah, no, there, there was, there was some, there was some point I had about the settings <laughs> and about, um, about the, uh, the way that they inform the story and the way that they, they kind of make the story. Uh, anyway, you know, make it unique. You're just talking about how it makes it unique. It's like it adds like a, a kind of extra commercial element to it. 
It's certainly no, no, sorry. That, that's yeah, exactly what it is. Sorry. Um, okay. So I can't, um, I can't tell you how many times I've met people in the Australian film industry who are trying to, you know, get an independent film up over here or something. And they're mm. like, Oh, you know, and we've got to make sure that it's like got an, an American main character, or we've got to make sure that, you know, it it's we'll film it here, but it's set in America or whatever. And <laughs> that is this misconception that, you know, to, to and I mean you often see it in Australian productions that are trying to break out overseas. They will um, you know, they'll try to foreground an American character in some way because there's this misconception somehow that Americans need to see themselves in order to take something seriously. And I go, right. well, no, because if you look at any Australian story that broke out overseas, whether it's Wolf Creek mm. or um or Muriel's Dundee. wedding or Priscilla or Crocodile. I mean Crocodile Dundee did have an American, but Mad Max is probably the prime example. None of those had American characters, mm. you know? And the the thing is, and this is the other thing I think is really valuable about Outback Noir, is that one of the reasons that that genre has become so successful overseas is because it's exotic, because it's different. Yes. Because, you know, people yes. people love that kind of thing because, you know, it's something totally different to what they're used to overseas. And I think that there's this like sense in Australia of like, oh, no, no, we have to like, we have to kind of like suck up to America and like include an American to make it work <laughs> over there. And I'm like, no, I, no, I 100% don't think that that's true. You know, our cultures aren't that different, but what we have that is different is what will make our work stand out from the whole market over there. You know, yes. what will make it just like a little bit different and give it a slightly different flavor that will not put people off, but actually make it more enticing to people over there. Yeah. Because otherwise you're competing with literally every other thriller that is getting published by an American author, which is a huge amount of competition. Who would you say are kind of the, you, you mentioned a couple of books before, but what would you say are like kind of the, the most pivotal books in sort of shaping this, this new genre or the ones that have been the most interesting in your opinion over the last couple of years? I mean, um, uh, it's, such a, it's such a tricky question. I mean, I think that we've seen, we've seen such a wave of it on, on so many levels that's just kind of growing and growing and building. Um, but I really think ultimately the kind of godparents of it are Jane Harper and Chris Hammer, you know, like it was the fact that I, I think that Scrublands came out in 2018 and The Dry came out in 2016. And it was really between those two books that the genre, I mean, The Dry the way that I see it, and I could be wrong on this, and you know, I could be, I could be missing something crucial. And if that's the case, I'm sorry. But you know, the dry was a runaway blockbuster that could have just been a one-off if Scrublands hadn't come along two years later and proved that there really was a huge hunger for more basically outback noir or more Australian noir. Mm. And since then, you know, we've also seen the genre diversify. I mean, you look at what Kyle Perry's doing right now, where he's writing these mystery thrillers that in some ways, yeah, are very reminiscent of Scrublands or the Dry, but they're using Tasmania as a setting. And Tasmania is a very different setting from the outback. You know, it's the it's the beaches and it's the bluffs and the mountains and those kind of things and the vast forests and everything. And Kyle, you know, I know Kyle personally, and he's somebody who knows that landscape intimately well and he takes full advantage of his knowledge of that landscape and the fact that he's you know somebody who's very outdoorsy and has a huge passion for that landscape and it absolutely saturates everything that he does and consequently the reason i think that his books have blown up so much is that yeah 
at their core, he's offering cracking mysteries in the vein of, you know, Jane Harper or Chris Hammer or, or anyone internationally you care, to aim, care to name, but he's not imitating anybody. You know, he's doing it in his own way and he's bringing his own passion for the land that he knows and loves into it in a way that makes it feel unique and different. And that's the key. You know, I mean, my, my publisher said to me when The Hunted was acquired that she couldn't, um, you know, that that you, you almost couldn't believe in the wake of the dry and scrublands, like how many books came across their desks that were imitating them, you know? Mm. And that that's something that happens, you know, like writers see something that's successful and they say, you know, I've done, I've done it myself, you know, they see something successful and they try to emulate it and they try to, you know, do the same thing. But they said to me that, you know, what they thought was really strong about The Hunted was that, yeah, it fit within that tradition in that it uses the Outback setting as part of it, but it's also a totally different book. It kind of has yeah, nothing absolutely. in common with the dry and scrublands apart from a slightly similar setting because neither of them have human hunting cannibals or anything like no. that. So, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's, I guess I count myself within that tradition to a degree, but at the same time, I think that the stuff I'm writing is like a little bit kind of, pulpier and wilder and gamier than like mm. you know a lot of what's going on elsewhere because i don't quite trust myself as being good enough or disciplined enough to write something like you know kyle or jane or chris have written all of which are you know excellent excellent reads but i don't think i'm quite good enough to do what they do so i just kind of stay in my lane and hope that it works sure sure i mean i have read the dry i personally do prefer the hunted but i can definitely see the appeal of the dry i think the the mystery element of that has yeah, more appeal to kind of people who want that sort of mystery and the detective stuff. But I feel The Hunted is definitely the place to go to if you want the more action, pulpy, Quentin Tarantino, but in Australia sort of stories. I'm probably just going to like snip that section of the recording and just like listen to it over, <laughs> over and over again every time I feel down about anything. When revisions are hard, it's basically Quentin Tarantino yeah. in the outback. Just, just, just over and over, and over again. Um, hard tangent here. You have been uh, a full-time writer for several years at this stage. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Yes. So I'm just curious to ask you, like, how have the challenges that you've faced as a writer sort of evolved over the years from the early initial starting out phases of, you know, you're just starting your first book or you maybe haven't finished a book yet, straight through to, okay, you finish a couple of books, they're not getting published wherever you are at, at that stage. And then you know, once you're sort of a full-time author and then a few years into that, like how do you kind of maintain the the love for it when it becomes more of a job? Like how do you maintain the momentum? How do you prioritize your time when you're in that phase? And yeah, I'm just curious to hear about like, what do you think are the kind of the biggest challenges that writers face at each point in that journey and what have been the solutions that you've sort of yeah, look, come up look, with? That? That's, that's, I think you hit the nail on the head right there. That That is the big challenge is that it's a job and when I was younger and when, you know, I wanted to get published and I wanted to be, you know, a, a best-selling author and all of that, like, I just saw that as the absolute dream. And it still is the absolute dream. Like, you know, I, every single day I, you know, could giggle with gratitude and <laughs> overwhelmed wonder that this is where I am right now, you know, sure, because yeah. it, it, it is kind of all I ever wanted and I'm living that. And it's amazing to me. And, and consequently, it means that even the, even the stressful times, a kind of underpinned with this. Yeah, but I can't believe that I'm stressing over this. This is amazing. Like, how good is this? I mean, even recently, um, there was a big issue going on behind the scenes on the development of the Hunted movie. Like, just this, this is kind of challenging thing. It's fine. It's all resolved now. But just this, like, challenging thing that was going on that was a little bit frustrating. The director and I were kind of, like, you know, talking about it and trying to resolve it. And, you know, we were sort of, like, venting a little bit. And then at one point, I was just like, yeah, but, dude, 
we get to do this. Like, yeah. this is we're making a you know? movie like, of my ideas. That, <laughs> like, yeah, we, we get to, you know, this is something that we're, we're dealing with and we have to, like the fact that we even get to have these conversations, the fact that they are problems, yes, but the fact that these are the problems now is amazing. I mean, and I don't think I'll ever lose sight of, or I hope I won't ever lose sight of how great that is, but it doesn't change the fact that, yes, they are stresses. Yes, they are problems and they have to be dealt with. I mean, I think that the weight of expectations is a difficult thing and not just the weight of expectations mm. from your readers, but the weight of expectations from, you know, your publisher or your agent or the production company you're working with or whatever. Yes. And because I have lived the hand to mouth life of a freelance writer for a long time, I'm not yet at a point where I'm comfortable saying no to pretty much anything. Mm -hmm. So basically most jobs that come across my desk, I will say yes to. And particularly in the last six months, that has led to some points where I've really bitten off more than I could chew. Like there was a couple yeah. of weeks there where I was doing a writer's room for an ABC show at the same time as I was trying to promote the inheritance at the same time as I was desperately trying to finish my new manuscript, which was already over deadline. And that wasn't to, you know, that wasn't to say that there was all this other stuff in the background as well at the same time that I was trying to deal with. And there were other looming projects I hadn't even had time to start on. And, and that was really difficult because, you know, I was doing this writer's room and I mean, obviously we're still in lockdown in Melbourne. We were still in lockdown at the time. And that meant that everything was done from home, which definitely made it easier in some respects, but it also meant that I was doing this writer's room entirely through Zoom of being up first thing in the morning, being in the office, like doing the work you know discussing ideas for the show and everything and then literally in my 15 minute breaks like tea breaks Jeez. i was writing the book i was back to my writing gosh. the book again <laughs> and you know it was and then like i would finish the day at five and i mean yeah of course on paper it's not particularly arduous work you're sitting in front of a computer talking about story but it's incredibly mentally draining Absolutely. and you finish it and all you want to do is like you know crack a beer and watch something dumb on TV and put your feet up. But I knew I had this looming deadline and that meant that for the next hour or two, I had to, I had to try to get a couple of thousand words down. And, you know, I had to somehow shift from the mindset of this very different show I was working on to this, to, to this new book. And there's a lot of that now. So again, I have to stress that the fact that those are my challenges is a wonderful, wonderful situation to be in, but they are challenges. And I guess it just kind of, it just kind of is, you know, I mean, that old, that old adage that, you know, if, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. I don't disagree with that. I think that that's, that's kind of true, but there might be a better amendment for it. Something to the effect of, you know, you love the work that you're doing. You know, if, if you love the work that you're doing, then it doesn't always feel like work, but sometimes it does feel like work. And that's not nearly as pithy or as like catchy as the original <laughs> saying, but I think it's truer, you know, and that there is time we just kind of like, Oh God, I just can't be bothered today. I don't, I don't have the brain space. I don't. And, you know, I've had a couple of moments like this week in particular, because I've been ping ponging between like three different quite pressing things this week. And I've honestly had moments where I'm just like, I just want to read Animorphs or play Age of Empires or, you know, do, do like anything that like, you know, can just take my brain away from this, but you kind of can't because you have responsibilities. And mm. in some cases you're being paid quite, you know, quite great sums of money to do this. And I guess that if there was one thing that I kind of miss a little bit from my earlier days as a writer, it's 
the ability to just kind of always do what I want to do and just mm. kind of do what I want to do at any given moment. And if a story isn't really speaking to me or whatever, I don't have to power through to try to meet a deadline. I can sure. just be like, cool, I'll put that aside and work on something else. And, you know, I don't want to go back to that. I love where I am, but that doesn't change the fact that there, there is an inherent wistfulness to being like, man, you know, there, there just was, there just was a bit of a difference when, you know, writing was something that I did in stolen minutes between uni and between working hospitality and all of that. And it kind of was my escape and it was my hobby. And it was the thing that I love doing. Whereas now it is my whole life, which has meant that I've had to try to find other hobbies, but you know, I wouldn't change it for the world, but those are, those are the realities of the circumstances that I think, you know, you just have to acclimate to. That's fair enough. I think if I'm to take a crack at trying to come up with a pithier response than what you were saying before about the whole never work a day in your life quote, I remember reading from, I think it was Mark Manson, a few might've been a year ago where he was saying that, you know, like life is about problems. You're always going to have different problems. Your job is just to find the problems that you most enjoy struggling with. And I think that's a, a useful framework to consider in terms of like, yeah, like the, the writing will always be difficult, but you'd probably much yeah. rather deal with the struggle of trying to come up with a really cool TV show based on your book rather than the struggle of, you know, doing a job that you're not passionate about, for example. And, and you know what, that's, that's, that ultimately is, I think, the perfect way to put it is that if you find problems that you are passionate about dealing with and that you enjoy ultimately dealing with, then yeah, it's a lot easier because you know, like you don't getting up in the morning, isn't a chore. It's kind of like, Oh yeah, there's like that stuff I've got to do, but cool. You know what? There's that stuff I've got to do and I like doing it. So, and I'm so lucky to be doing it. And I, I try never ever to lose sight of that, you know? Awesome. Yeah. I think this is a good place to wrap it up. That's some good words of wisdom to end on. What is the, the next book coming out for you or the thing that you're working on? at the moment, which may be different things. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's been a bit of a wild year because, you know, I had true color of little white lie at the start of the year. I had the inheritance come out in August and I've just had the consequence come out, which is a spin-off of the inheritance that takes the Jack Carlin character and sort of tells his story uh, six months before six months to a year before the inheritance takes place. And so, you know, they, they sort of complement each other and everything, but after those three in fairly close succession, it feels really wild to think about the next steps, but I've, just delivered my new manuscript to Harper, which is my new YA book that is very, very different to the true color of little white lie. And I guess the, it's a, I know, I know, I know you said let's wrap up, but the moment. No, actually I realized I have one question to ask you after this, so you can keep going. (laughs) Cool. Well, awesome. So anyway, look, this is, this is inherently quite a big story because it kind of can't not be given the backstory of this, but effectively what happened was that, um, Last year, I wrote a sequel to The True Color of Little White Lie and book a manuscript called A Different Type of Ordinary, which I'm really, really proud of and I think is, you know, one of my favorite things I've ever written. Yeah, but I love basically, it. we I had a conversation with my publisher about it where effectively sequels in YA, if you're not writing dystopian or fantasy stuff, are really, really hard, you know, right. because it's you know, there's just like, there's just sort of so many different things it's relying on and why generally speaking doesn't sell as much as adult books and everything. So basically before True Colour came out, we had a really long conversation, my publisher and I, about different type of ordinary and about, you know, whether I would be able to rewrite it to make it about a different character. So it wouldn't be about Nelson, the protagonist of True Colour. And I had a crack at that and that didn't 
work. Like I just kind of came out of it, you know, really being like, no, I'm reinforced the fact that I really thought this is about Nelson. And my publisher was like, okay, well, in that case, you know, and, you know, Lisa Berryman, my YA publisher has always been, you know, my biggest advocate, my biggest supporter and has put up with a lot of crap in terms of me, like missing deadlines or dragging things out or making excuses for why I haven't delivered something or whatever, you know, she's an absolute saint, but she said that basically the smartest and most strategic choice that we could make was to basically hold off on different type of ordinary and give true color some time to, you know, find its feet and find its audience and spread and grow, which is what YA has to do. Right. And basically, you know, if we revisit different type of ordinary, you know, we do it in a couple of years time when basically audiences have had the time it. to miss true color and get to know the character and, you know, sit with it and live with it for a while, which made perfect sense. So I was put in a position where basically I had to, come up with a different YA book and I went through a lot of different ideas you know I went through an idea for like something that was sort of playing more in the dystopian well, not dystopian sci-fi but dystopian fantasy sphere but I also thought about returning to the Booniverse you know to yeah. um write the idea I've kind of been playing with for a long time about Boone Shepard's daughter that takes place like 20 mm. years after the Boone Shepard books and I thought you know it's at the time to do that and I kind of like bounced around a bit but then Lisa was like you know I think maybe step maybe doing something this is your opportunity basically she was like this is your opportunity to do something different to anything you've done before whether it's true color color whether it's the hunted whether it's boone shepherd whether it's anything and so consequently i decided to do something that i had done many many times before which was to revisit <laughs> was a manuscript that <laughs> i've been working on since i was 17 and that manuscript was was called windmills in its earliest iteration and, you know, I wrote a draft when I was 17. It later was adapted into a play that became my first play. I self-published a version of it in 2012. I wrote a screenplay version of it that was to date until, until this one, the only version that had any success whatsoever because it was <laughs> what won me the Peter Euston Award and got yes. me to America. I then rewrote as a novel. That novel was, basically every version of the novel was always rejected by every agent publisher in Australia. And it was about... Three years ago, right before I wrote The Hunted, that I got one rejection too many on the book. And I just said, you know what? I need to write something else. And that led me to write The Hunted, which, you know, led to us <laughs> talking win. about everything we've been talking about today. So, so this manuscript had been sitting in a drawer for three years and I'd kind of made the choice to let go of it. I'd made the choice to just say, you know what? If this never comes to fruition, I've just got to be at peace with it. And finally, you know, I wasn't really thinking about it. I hadn't really seriously considered revisiting it in a while, but as I was kind of racking my brain about what to do to, you know, write another book for my YA contract, I came up with the idea of revisiting windmills. And the big problem with windmills was always that the first part of the story was set in a high school and the back half was following the characters into adulthood. And because it was ultimately a crime thriller, but one that started off with a, moral dilemma set in a high school there was always this just like confusion from people about what it was you know yes. was it a is it a YA novel is it an adult thriller is it this is it this is it this and so I made a really massive choice and that was to split the book to take the YA part of the book the high school part of the book and develop that into its own novel and in theory, my thinking was, well, maybe I'll revisit the adult stuff down the line and reshape that into its own book. But because one would be YA and one would be adult, I couldn't do that unless both halves were completely satisfying stories in their own right that did not rely on the other one to work. And mm. so I spent a long time kind of pulling my hair out and trying to figure out how to make what 
had started out as, you know, a third of a story into a full novel in its own right. And the key, honestly, was to stop thinking of it as windmills, to say, all right, you know what? Windmills is dead and buried. You know, windmills <laughs> was something I worked on a long time ago and I've let go of windmills. And because I've let go of windmills, I can now actually look at what comes out of the ashes, you know, what rises from the ashes of that story, which is something new. And basically that's slowly found its way into a book that had its own very distinct identity separate from the old windmill story. Um, for people who've read versions of it, this is actually quite different in a lot of key ways. Like some of the main plot points are vastly, vastly different. The ending's different. The inciting incident is different. Like it's the same characters and the same central theme but it's very much its own thing and um yeah I kind of really grappled with that for a little while and then I did this thing where like I jumped around in perspectives because I thought that was a good idea and then when I reread the whole book when I finished it I realized the perspective jumps didn't work so I had to go back like and I was already past deadline I had to go back and rewrite all the perspective jumped moments from the perspective of the character I started out with and all of this stuff going back and forwards and finally I ended up with a version where I read over it and I was like I actually think it really works but you know when you've been with a story for 12 years you kind mm. of um you know you kind of can't look at it with a whole lot of clarity anymore so you know I collected a little bit of feedback from a couple of writers I knew I was careful about sharing it too widely and then I sent it to my publisher and I kind of waited for several anxiety fueled days until she called me and told me she really liked it nice. and um I just kind of you know had this weird night where I just sort of sat there after that and just felt completely, you know, like, I don't know, exuberant, but drained at the same time somehow. And just kind of sat there and like listened to music that I'd use as inspiration on different versions of this book. And like, kind of just let myself sit with the fact that finally this story that has been like the bane of my writing life for so long, like is going to come to the light in, in, in one version or another. Yeah. So, so yeah, look, I mean, that's going to be at this point, my next book. Uh, awesome. We, we, we're slowly working on honing in on a, final title it won't be called windmills but i will you know announce that as soon as i'm allowed to but um but yeah so that'll be my next book and then i've got another audible original coming out i think either late this year or early next year which is different to the consequence because the consequence kind of sat more in the noiry territory of the inheritance whereas this kind of goes back to the hunt a little bit more like it's outback set again it's sort of a little bit dark or a little bit more horror infused although i'd probably say more psychological thriller and it's a standalone story it's its own thing it's called the hitchhiker but you know it's about basically a kind of naive middle-aged guy who picks up a hitchhiker who he probably shouldn't have picked up and things get very twisted and very strange from there but i'm really enjoying cool. writing that and that should be out pretty soon Nice. I can't wait to listen to that because, yeah, the last one was excellent. Um, this is another extremely hard tangent here. I have made either the mistake or the excellent decision to begin reading The Wheel of Time. And oh, I no. know that several oh, years no, ago, no. you read this series. So <laughs> tell me, what was your experience with it? Um, I'm almost, I'm almost oh. finished with book one. I've got about 100 pages left of The Eye of the World. I mean, it's long. Um, yes, <laughs> it's probably the, probably the biggest thing to take away from it. I mean, look, it's, I, I committed to the wheel of time a couple of years ago and it took me a long time to get through the whole series, but I guess the thing was that, yeah, I, I sort of like, I was enjoying it. I wasn't like enraptured by it, but I was enjoying it for like the first sort of, you know, 
four or five books and every now and then you know something really exciting would happen I'd get totally swept up in it but then the pace I found always like a little bit lurchy and then as anybody who's read the wheel of time or heard anything about it knows in the back half of the series it gets really 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 tedious like it just sort of from book six onwards the pace just incrementally slows and slows and slows and slows until you get to the point where you have almost 1000 page books in which nothing of value happens yes. like books where, you know, the events of the previous book are just recounted by all the minor characters who didn't witness them. And there's just, you know, you books, you can absolutely just skip, but then it's like, or you could just skip if there weren't like some minor things that would eventually come to right. bear, but it just, it becomes a very frustrating read. And then to be honest, I was kind of nearing a breaking point and then it does kind of start to pick up before Robert Jordan stops writing them and Brandon Sanson takes over, mm -hmm. but there is a slight sense of relief when Brandon Sanson takes over, because as anybody who's read Brandon Sanderson knows, yeah, his plotting author. tends to be quite tight and quite vital. Well, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's the way that he plots are very different to how Robert Jordan plots. Like, you know, Robert Jordan's quite meandering. Brandon Sanderson's quite deliberate. And therefore I think I found the home stretch very very satisfying and in the final book i kind of felt that jordan and sanderson's respective voices came together in a way that i found really quite special mm. but i mean yeah i think i think the biggest thing i'll take away from that series is that the day i finished it i probably felt unlike i'd ever felt finishing any series before because I'd never read a series that was so long yeah. and at times so difficult to get through. So there was a real sense of achievement upon finishing it that in some ways made it even more satisfying because you look back and you think, man, what a journey. And it's funny because I'm kind of, I'm currently, as anybody who follows my social media knows, I'm currently rereading all the Animorphs books. Yes. I was like really into Animorphs when I was like quite young and recently sort of rediscovered it a little bit but i never finished the series as a kid so i went back and i spent ages tracking down every book and i've been rereading from start to finish and at the time of recording i've only got four books left to go and there's 62 books in total they're short books but yeah. you know 62 is still a lot and i've been reading them all year and it's funny because in a similar way even though animals is a very different series the wheel of time it doesn't even with 62 books doesn't occupy nearly as much page space it also has a lot of filler and a lot of stuff that just like isn't necessary. And some books that are just like, why am I reading this? Don't make me read this. <laughs> but now that I'm near the end, it's kind of like, I almost look back on that stuff fondly as being part of the journey. Mm. And that was how I felt about the wheel of time. So it's, it's weird because in a weird way, it's flaws kind of end up becoming endearing or becoming, um, somehow assets as it goes on because those rough patches feel like achievements which i don't know if that sounds like a particularly ringing endorsement but <laughs> i guess i would say tentatively it's worth it but i don't know if that's just stockholm syndrome speaking <laughs> but it's um that's what, that's what i always know, wonder I with fans of it as well is like you've just yeah, been look, so i think, I think look, the way i the way i put it is that i'm glad i read the wheel of time i will never read it again Sure. There are people who reread the series and I, that is incomprehensible. Yeah, to me. I cannot see myself ever rereading it. I hope the Amazon show is good. And I hope that's all the revisiting I ever need to do, yeah. <laughs> but I have, I have no plan on ever rereading that series. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I'll, I'll see how it goes. I have heard that uh, most people seem to say like, you know, book one is very similar to Lord of the Rings. Book two is where it starts getting a bit more original and a little bit more quote unquote. Two was probably my favorite. Two was, um, mm -hmm. 
with the exception of the final book, which is really just payoff from start to finish. Yeah. The final book is very, very satisfying. Um, book two was probably the one where I was the most caught up. The Great Hunt is real, like particularly the last stretch of the book is so satisfying and such a thrill ride. Um, but then three sucks. Uh, four is kind of all over the place, but has one sequence that I think is like one of the best things I've ever read and will stick with me for my whole life. Everyone um, everyone says that about book four. It's like, what is this? I'm like, I'm really tempted to ask people what it is, but I also don't want to because I want to retain the surprise. The, 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 you, the words forward and back will always haunt you from, from you know, okay. from the moment you read it until your dying day. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, I will uh, maybe give you an update on whether I finished The Wheel of Time or not in 10 years from now when we're having our... 50th yes, podcast yeah, interview yeah. <laughs> but um yeah. this has been a good a good spot to wrap it up thank you so much for coming on the show gabe um for you listening or watching the inheritance is excellent i blasted through it in i think two days so it is great read actually this was a kind of a thing that helped me like have a break from reading the wheel of time in the middle of the book went to reading this oh. i was like oh so nice and short and then back to that that's my other bit of advice is take breaks if you're going to read the wheel of time mm. take breaks i Very interesting I took strategic breaks of reading other things in between. Yeah. And no, if I would have got through it, if I had, hadn't have done that. Okay. That's cool. Like within, within individual books or like between books? No, no, no. Between books, between books. But yeah, you know, okay. I'd, I'd maybe every two books, I might read like two other things in between. Mm-hmm. Um, and that felt pretty, that, that did kind of make it a little bit easier for me, particularly if I was getting frustrated. Yeah. Um, but, and that wasn't to say that that made the crossroads of twilight any easier to get through, but, <laughs> um, but you know, it, it definitely didn't make it harder. Fair enough. All right. That's good advice. Hopefully I won't die from this experience, but, uh, yeah, Gabe, thanks again for coming on. Um, yeah. If people want to check you out on social media, where can they find you? Um, yeah, just I'm on I'm on all social medias under the same uh, the same uh, handle. It's uh, Geo Bergmoser, Go Bergmoser, um, which I think a lot of people think is like Bergmoser. No, it's just like my first two initials and my surname. Um, <laughs> I always thought it was Go Bergmoser as well. So glad. To- I know it's funny that it never even occurred to me, but then it was just like you know, no, it's um, but I'm I'm cool with that too um, because it does make a lot of sense. But um, yeah, so so Go Bergmoser, uh, wherever wherever you want to want to check it out. Um, and yeah, please listen. I, I would recommend listen to the consequence before you read the inheritance if you yes. are if okay. all of this has made it sound like that's something you want to check out. But it doesn't really matter. But I do think the consequence kind of nicely sets the scene and it's totally free. So why not? Sweet. Thanks for coming on the show, Gabe. Uh, and for the rest of you, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for having me back.